What's up, everybody? And welcome to another episode of the Roots, Rednecks, and Radicals podcast. Today, we're going to learn something new and interesting in the world of Americana, Roots, and folk music. But before we get to that, I want to say a quick reminder to like, follow, and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. And if you're on social media, give me a follow if you haven't already. I'm on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. Just search up the name of the show and you will find me there. All right, let's get to today's episode. All right. Well, this month is Black History Month, and I wanted to do an episode of an idea I've had for quite some time now. And this idea is that hip hop is not respected as folk music. If you talk to people in the roots, Americana folk music uh, sort of genre about, um, uh, you know, what types of music and whatnot, it's it's very rare that hip hop is, is going to come up. But the development of hip hop and rap as a genre is actually super, super fascinating. The development of, of different instruments, things like the the turntable, two, two records spinning and making a breakbeat, things like the sampler of taking uh, little uh, snippets of music and putting them onto a machine and then making a whole new composition out of that. Things like drum machines where you are manipulating the sounds of, of live drums and electronic drums and coming up with new uh, ways to make music. All of this is folk music. It's music of the people. And um, I just think that this is a, um, a, a, a area that needs to be explored a little more and people need to give it some more respect as far as a musical genre. So in today's episode, we take a look at all those instruments. We look at, take a look at hip hop history of rap history and talk about um, uh, how hip hop really is folk music. Enjoy. Um, this month, uh, the month of February is Black History Month, and um, you know there's a uh, uh, all kinds of uh, tributes and whatnot musically um, out there that, that the people are doing on the radio and and um, uh, podcasts and, and stuff like that. And so I wanted to do my own thing that I've been thinking about for uh, quite a while now, and um, and, and the, the idea is is this that I think hip hop should be considered folk music now. Um, couple of things as we um, dig into this. First off, I wanted to um, uh, talk about cultural appropriation before I jump into it because there's a couple of uh, uh, sensitive topics here. First of all, I'm a white dude uh, talking about black music, so I always want to be careful about that because I don't want to try and, and uh, act like I'm appropriating other people's um, music and culture and ideas and, and things like that. So I think that's an important thing to remember. And uh, the other thing is this... Um, this discussion or this idea of, of genre and and we call um, different types of music different things and all that and uh, you know I could have a whole I could I could write a whole book on on the idea of genre uh, but suffice it to say for this conversation here uh, to me um, uh, genre is always an adjective and never a noun um, I don't think it's a it's a definitive thing that you can put a stamp on and say this is rock music um, this is country music. This is bluegrass music. This is rap. This is hip hop. This is whatever. Uh, because the minute you do that, there's going to be some artist out there who's going to blur the lines and confuse the conversation. I think Little Nas X, uh, with his song uh, that came out uh, a couple of years ago, did just that thing in blurring the lines between hip hop and country music and started this whole sort of national conversation about what it means. And uh, so that, to me, that's why it's important to not think of genre as a uh, de- defined. A definitive thing, and that's why I say it's not a noun. It's a, it's a description of uh, music. And when you talk to to artists, when you talk to musicians about genre, um, a lot of times they they, they kind of think it's one of the most boring conversations you could have because most <laughs> musicians I've talked to are like, I don't know, it just is what it is, man. Everybody plays music and interprets music and hears music and has um, inspiration and all that kind of stuff, and they just play the music that, that comes out of them, and I think that's a good way to uh, to look at it. So um, the reason I think hip-hop is, it should be considered folk music is because 
It's born out of a particular situation in a particular place uh, in America, and and it's it's working class, largely poor people who are creating this music in the very early days, um, you know, well into the time where more and more people started making uh, money off of it. And and it came out of uh, an expression of the people. And that's what folk music is, right? It's it's music of the folks. It's music of the people. And um, there's uh, historically been these distinctions in genre uh, in American history that are um, inextricably, inextricably tied to uh, race relations in America. Um, when you look back at the history of um, the accessibility that African-American artists had to the music industry, it, it's, it's, it's pretty troublesome, uh, to say the least. In the early days of, of, of recording, uh, blackface and minstrel shows were still a thing that were taking place, and um, and and there was um, African Americans making jazz music and and um, uh, and blues music and doing all these different things. And um, er, early on in the um, uh, recording music days, um, they got sort of um, uh, categorized into what they called race music, which is hugely problematic by today's standards. And uh, essentially, what they're saying is like race meant like black music um, because. You know, largely in America, we had the Chinese Exclusion Act, and you know we were pretty uh, hostile towards um, Asian immigrants uh, early on. So not a ton of uh, Asian Americans. Uh, Mexican Americans were out in the West, but and in Texas and whatnot, but um, were really part of like the music industry. So when we're talking about the early days of the recording industry, it's um, it's mainly it's mainly white and black. And so uh, when you say uh, race. That's just a um, another way of saying black. This is, this is black music, right? And so um, in the early rock and roll days, um, uh, they started to, to try and change that by getting some white artists play rock and roll, and then that kind of changed and, and you know became more accepted, so on and so forth. There's a whole history to that. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I think um, hip-hop, which starts in 1973 at, in, in, in the Bronx in New York City, is an expression of American folk music. And it largely doesn't get talked about as such because of the electronic nature of it, that the people who are performing and recording the music aren't playing instruments, um, that traditional instruments that, that people recognize, guitar, piano, and uh, things like that. And so they, they are playing instruments. It's just that the, these instruments are, are new, and they're technological, and they're electronic, and it's a whole new sound that, that people just uh, didn't recognize as uh, being musicians. But they are, especially I'm going to talk about something called the MPC, and it turns people into composers. And, and it, it's so interesting. It's so fascinating how people took things that weren't necessarily meant to be uh, played live um, as like musical instruments and things, and they uh, came up with a new way of, of um, presenting their art to, to the world. And I think that that's fantastic and amazing. So quick history of hip hop. And um, and then I'll dive into um, some of the instruments that these guys um, uh, start start using. So first of all, it's um, uh, as a, as a style of music. It starts in 1973, like I mentioned. There's the, there's a house party that DJ Cool Herc put on, and uh, that's widely recognized as the birth of of, of, of hip hop. And there's a lot of there's a lot of mystery um, surrounding uh, that particular party. Um, there's kind of an ongoing joke in the hip hop community about like like everyone from New York says that they were at that party if they were alive in 1973. But it was a kind of a small party. There's you know um, uh, dozens, if not you know a hundred or so people at the party. It wasn't like a huge block party, and so you know it just you, you couldn't have that many people there. But nonetheless, that incident is kind of considered the big bang of hip hop, and the reason for it is because. 
uh, DJ Cool Herc, and then uh, quickly after him, uh, Grandmaster Flash uh, developed something uh, called the breakbeat. And uh, the, the breakbeat is this um, this, this, this kind of innovation uh, in music. But basically, what was happening in New York at the time is that they would have these huge block parties and, and a, a party like at uh, Cool Herc's house. And some of them were huge, where there'd be like thousands of people there, and they'd rent out like a gym. And um, people would come, and they'd dance, and they'd go on for hours and hours. And uh, what developed out of that was... Um, something called the breakbeat and uh, kind of the, the 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 system that was happening was you had an an, an mc and you had a dj probably, probably multiple mcs and uh, multiple djs um uh, playing a show and if you think of like a club style music you want the music to just continue on uh, continuously with no breaks in between and the music just just keeps on going so what developed was they had um the, the system they came up with was having uh, two turntables and this was taken from some of the clubs in New York City um, uh, that they kind of uh, adapted into their own. And you'd have two turntables and then something called a crossfader. Now, the crossfader was, imagine two turntables. You've, you've seen it on TV before in you know the, the old rap days uh, where you got a guy with like two record players. And uh, the crossfader goes between the record, on, record player on the left and the record player on the right. And so you got a song going, say, on the, on the record on the left-hand side, and it's going, and people are dancing and doing their thing and whatnot, um, you, you want to keep that song going, so you get a, another record, and you put it on, on the turntable on the right, and um, it's it's muted to the crowd, but you can hear it on your headphones. That's why the uh, DJs always have like headphones on. And so they would cue up the next song that's going to work for them that they want to play and kind of um, hold it there on pause, and then when they're ready to go, when the, when the, the beat's right, then they'll, they'll swap the, the crossfader over, uh, push it all the way to the right, and then... Um, uh, and then let go of that record and let it play. And then they go back to the left, take the record off, put it in a sleeve or whatever, bring out a new record, find the song while the, the one on the right's going, and then uh, pull up the song and then kind of get it ready to pause. And then when that song's ready to go, they'll switch Crossfader back over to the left, and boom, now you got that song. So that was uh, that was a style of DJing that was <clears throat> pretty common, pretty popular in, in, in clubs and whatnot. But the breakbeat that DJ Cool Herc and then Grandmaster Flash kind of innovated on as well, uh, was something that, that Cool Herc called the merry-go-round. And the merry-go-round was, um, was, was picking uh, songs in, in, in such a way that um, you could um, play pieces and snippets of both. So imagine this for just a second. Imagine you got a James Brown song on, and, uh, and, and it's bumping, and it's funky, and it's good, and it's dancing, and the people are going crazy and whatnot. And then um, you have another record where you have just like a little snippet, a little uh, musical phrase or a little lyrical phrase uh, that you want to play, and you can move that crossfader kind of to the middle, and now you can hear both records, and uh, you play just a little bit, that, that snippet um, uh, from, from the, the record on the right, and, and it kind of blends these two songs. And this was this was the new innovation at the time. And this is the thing that Cool Herc did that was um, uh, pretty innovative. And the people in the crowd talk about, you know, in, in like documentaries and, and, and books and whatnot, talk about just how amazing and incredible this was. And that it was this like this major, major thing for them to, um, uh, you know, to, to, to kind of do that. And then Grandmaster Flash um, was then uh, able to um, uh, kind of innovate that further. And what he did was he took a, a crayon um, and uh, marked on the record. Now, there was a taboo, and probably still a taboo um, uh, today um, outside of the hip-hop community, of touching vinyl um, because, you know, you have oil on your fingers and, and you don't want it to, like, ruin the vinyl. Um, but once uh, um, Grandmaster Flash realized that he could, you know, put his finger on the vinyl and, you know, put it into um, make it stop, then he felt like he had control over the music. And so what he would do 
is he would find um, two two beats that, that that worked really well together, and um, he would cue one up, have one song going, and then on the other one he would he would mark where the beat begins exactly like precisely and he'd mark it with a with a yellow crayon and he would just um write it there and then he'd queue up to where it was he could kind of rewind the, the 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 vinyl backwards and then keep his finger on it and hold it there and then um when when the part of the song came on where that wanted where that the other song wanted to drop he, he'd switch over real quick and let it go now the innovation there is that it was precise um what dj cool herc was doing was a little more sloppy uh, because he was moving the, the needle he was uh, the tone arm he was like uh moving around like you know getting it pretty close but it wasn't like precisely exactly where you wanted it to be but grandmaster flash um with with his method with that crayon he was able to do that and it just made the 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 breakbeats um that much more complex and uh, more interesting so you have that going on um the dj side of things now the mc and this is kind of the core of what hip-hop music is you have the the dj and the mc mc is is just like the 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 master of ceremonies it's it's the the mc of an event if you go to uh uh, dinners and and uh fundraisers and things like that and they have the mc of the evening or you watch award shows on television and you know the Grammys were just on, and Trevor Noah uh, was the MC of the night. He's the guy who's kind of in in charge of of the party. He's the one who's who's in charge of making sure that people are entertained, that people are enjoying it, that things are happening, and things are going, and all that kind of stuff. And so the music side of thing is the DJ, and he's got those two turntables and the crossfader. And then you got the MC, and he's the one who's just kind of like keeping the crowd hyped and whatnot. And that's where a lot of these call and response things that became kind of you know cliches and stereotypes in hip hop. Um, everybody clap your hands i say hey you say ho hey that kind of stuff uh, that was developed in this time period where the where the mcs were, were were doing things to just kind of like do crowd work basically and keep people entertained and, and all that kind of stuff now that is what develops into rap and um, the mc so the, like the the sort of prototypical mc <clears throat> holding the microphone um, spitting rhymes and doing his thing um while the dj plays the music that becomes like the thing, right? That's what we that's what we call rap music, um, uh, and so that develops in in in, in New York City in nineteen in the early nineteen seventies. <clears throat> And then um, continues on uh, in, in, in late 1970s when we, we first get our um, first big recordings from the world of rap and hip hop with like the Sugar Hill Gang and, uh, and, and things like that. But early on, uh, for, for most of the 1970s, um, hip hop and rap was happening mainly in new york city um you know there might be other cities where where people were doing similar things music tends to be like that uh but for the most part this is happening in 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 new york and um and 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 it's live and and it's very rarely recorded if there are recordings they're like you know kind of crappy recordings kind of recordings that you know people just put on tape or whatever and and um, they aren't great recordings because it was really an expression of live music and so again coming back to this idea of like what is folk music to me that's just like quintessential folk music you have people doing something innovative with music playing it for the people that they're a part of and everyone's enjoying it and it's a new expression it's a new artistic expression right and uh, to me that is the essence of what folk music is so whether you're in Appalachia uh, playing you know uh, banjo and mandolin and fiddle or uh, you're a, a blues player from Mississippi playing acoustic guitar or you know you're whatever anywhere around the country uh, you're you're um, a musician playing for people, and and, and it's not like classical and, and you know like wealthy ritzy kind of stuff going on. Uh, that's to me that's that's folk music. I have a very broad definition of what folk music is. So 
all of that is to say that um, this this whole uh, this whole uh, genre and style of music is is uh, super important to American musical history, and I think it should be uh, celebrated as such. So I want to play a couple of early songs and uh, talk about them in the early days of of, of hip hop. And there's this really interesting development that happens um, with this um, th- with the song called Apache. So there's a group called the Incredible Bongo Band, and it's not really a band. It's uh, kind of a group of studio musicians who made an album for a particular movie. And the movie is super weird. It's about a dude who has two heads and like, I don't even know how to explain it. Like it's a really weird movie. And, um, it, it's, it, and like it's, there's like a, a the, the idea is that there's a, um, a white guy who's a bigot and they sew a black guy's head onto his body. And then they have this, it's, it's weird. The whole concept is just bizarre. Uh, but nonetheless, the important part of it is that the incredible bongo band recorded this, this, this album for it for like the chase scenes and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, there's a song on that record called, um, bongo rock and a, patchy two different songs but they're kind of basically the same song um bongo rock um sounds very very similar to apache but apache becomes one of the most sampled songs early on in hip-hop and a lot of these guys who are making breakbeats are um are are playing apache and uh, so what i wanted to do is i wanted to show you these these songs and the progression of how it starts off as a kind of a, a a normal like rock and roll song and then uh, gets uh, intertwined into the world of hip hop and then becomes uh, something very different that um, that if you were raised like me in the 1980s and you went to roller rinks, uh, the song is going to be instantly recognizable. Uh, Go Houston jump on it so on and so forth right so um, i think you know what i'm talking about but uh yeah i want to play this this first song this is um uh, the incredible bongo band and the song apache so uh yeah let's just listen to this and then i'll i'll, I'll explain how the uh, the progression takes place after that so here you go incredible bongo band apache So a couple things about this song, um, you know, you can hear the, the the bongos happening in the background. They're a pretty key element to the rhythm of the song. The recognizable organ part is is um, the kind of the hook that I think a lot of guys grabbed onto in the early days of of um, uh, spinning these records. And <clears throat> it's a um, it's just an incredible song, and you can see how it has a very danceable, funky kind of vibey feel to it. And um, yeah, just sounds, let's listen to a little bit more of it. I, I kind of personally, I like the, the surf rock sounding guitar kind of in the background. I think that's really cool too. Um, so nonetheless, um, it's the it's the it's the part of the song that um, this one right here that probably sounds familiar to a lot of people. 
So you can see how this would make a great uh, dance break, right? Like it's very <clears throat> kind of the right tempo for dancing and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, that's what's going on with the uh, the song Apache by the Incredible Bongo Band. And uh, in the early days, uh, people started to do that in live performances and whatnot. And uh, one of the first groups to put this to record was the Sugar Hill Gang. Now, um, in, in the history of hip-hop, the Sugar Hill Gang wasn't a, a, a grassroots group of guys who uh, kind of came up, you know, uh, from, the, uh, from the scene that was happening. They were more like um, uh, a, a record label uh, found some of these guys and, and, and musicians and whatnot to, um, to put out um, those, uh, those, those early hits. But nonetheless, the, the first recorded hits of hip-hop are from the Sugar Hill Gang, and a lot of guys who were part of the scene were a little um, upset about that uh, in the very early days. But nonetheless, a lot of us know the Sugar Hill Gang. And um, they're very <clears throat> popular as far as American music goes. Um, so they did their own version of Apache, and it's 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 called Apache, and then parentheses jump on it. And uh, so this is the second development of uh, the song, and then there's going to be a third development of this song in uh, the um, in the '80s by Sir Mix-a-Lot. So let's listen to a little bit of this this uh, Sugar Hill game. This is uh, Apache, jump on it, and you can hear those bongos right in the beginning. Now you're getting those uh, roller rink vibes. If you, <laughs> if you know, you know, all right? Uh, but yeah, it's so fun. It's such a fun song. Like the, uh, the the music and then like the crowd noise in the background. It just has this like, this is so cool, man. It's such a good vibe. It just sounds fun. And like you can see people dancing to it and just getting down and whatnot. Yeah, let's do a little bit more. Right. So the, uh, the, I think the lyrics aren't as recognizable to people um, as uh, the rest of the song. And also the, the lyrics in early rap music, you know, it is what it is, but they're a little cringy, to be honest with you. You know, it's like, it just, they're not really complex um, in this time. They hadn't uh, really started to work on complex rhyme structures and things like that. It's went to the alley with the baseball bat kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, it is what it is. But <clears throat> it's cool, and it has its own vibe, and um, and it was definitely a huge thing at the time and uh, and so important to um, uh, to the development of this, this style of music. Now, that's Sugar Hill Gang, the next incarnation of this, and this is the one uh, that they played in a lot of roller rinks when you were a kid. And when I was a kid, anyway, in Gen X, I was born in 78, so just kind of give you the time period of when I was being a human and um, uh, this uh, go Houston jump on it that whole thing um, that's Sir Mix a lot and uh, that got you know, played a ton and it's been in you know all, all kinds of different things so yeah you can this is the third incarnation of this song and just a little bit different uh, a little bit different style a little bit different vibe to it and let's listen to a little bit of uh, Sir Mix a lot's version of jump on it here What's up? What's up, San Antonio? What's up? What's up, San Antonio? Jump on it. Jump on it. Jump on it. 
Yeah, that bass though right there that's good all right yeah so um shout outs to all kinds of different like cities and and all that kind of stuff you know i have to say i'm really shocked that carson city nevada was not um mentioned in the recording of this by sir mix a lot that just seems like a huge miss you know for him to uh, you know hip-hop guy to miss the beautiful town of uh, carson city nevada uh, I'm, I'm obviously joking um but uh, there's some cali uh, cali shouted out there in some cities in california in, in hip-hop like if you're from you know rural nevada you, you're not going to get any shout outs you're not going to get mentioned and uh closest you're going to come is you know california cities uh, the bay area has its own um you know uh, niche um history in, in in the history of hip-hop and all that um but mainly you're getting like los angeles if you're talking west coast um, LA is gonna be it. Not even Seattle, Portland don't really ever get mentioned. Um, pretty much the Bay and uh, and LA get shoutouts in hip hop. So anyway, um, that is the development of that. So you start with Apache, the incredible bongo band, making music for this really weird niche kind of movie, and then um, uh, Sugar Hill Gang remixes it, does their own thing with it, and this remix a lot does it. And uh, that song Apache is just like a staple in hip hop. Um, uh, to hip hop heads, it's it's you know um, it, it's how we think of like er- the early rock and roll days if you're really into uh, rock and roll. And uh, just a really really important song. Now, I want us to play one other song <clears throat> from not really from this area era, but um, a song that exemplifies the era to me. And um, it's from the Beastie Boys. So the Beastie Boys uh, put out a song uh, called um, Three MCs and One DJ. We be getting down with no delay. Mix Master Mike, what you got to say. Um, and what I love about this song is that it is like the elements of um, of what that would have been like. Now, because in the 1970s, there weren't a lot of... Um, these performances weren't recorded. They, there wasn't live, for, you know, live recordings of them. They, um, we, we, we don't know exactly. We have a sense of like basically what it sounded like, but we don't, we don't have actual recording to go back and listen to a lot of the stuff. Or if you hear it, it's, it's kind of a crappy recording. Um, uh, and so I always liked this song. So I thought it was cool because it goes back to a time where um, and, and, and doing a recording of, of how the stuff kind of would have sounded a little bit. And then they're obviously doing their own Beastie Boys take on it. Um, but basically, they have a DJ named Mixmaster Mike. He's from Sacramento. I think he's from Davis, Sacramento. He's from he's from california um uh, kind of close to us here in northern nevada and um incredible dj just crazy um there's a, a snippet on on uh, one of the records where it's him calling their their um, answering machine and he's uh he's he's showing them uh this this thing he calls the tweak scratch where he hooked up his his turntables to a, a wah pedal and um, makes these crazy sounds and whatnot and and dj uh, or Mixmaster Mike rather um, <clears throat> was uh, was an innovator and uh, came up with all kinds of really really cool interesting sounds and so um, this song is him performing the beat um, the break beat on uh, on on the turntables and then uh, the Beastie Boys uh, rapping over the um, the beat and so that's you know three MCs and one DJ it's just this very elemental to me kind of very punk um, uh, uh, song not punk and like it doesn't there's no guitars there's no like punk beat or anything like that but to me it's it's like very like like grassrootsy you know diy kind of a kind of a song so yeah so this is uh three mcs and one dj by the beastie boys listen to a little bit of this cause nobody can do it like mix master can come on i got the t double o d double o star Uh, 
All right. So, yeah, so you hear a little bit of the um, uh, the turntable and the MCs uh, um, rapping over the uh, the beat. Pretty memorable kind of chorus. Let's listen to the mixing right here. This is really cool. So what uh, Mixmaster Mike is doing is scratching, and um, that's something that I didn't really mention uh, before as far as like a development of uh, musical styles and whatnot. Uh, but uh, scratching is moving the, the, the record in a, in a rhythmic manner, and, and that's an important part of the breakbeat as well, that um, you're not just playing two different parts of uh, mixing up two different songs, uh, but the scratch gives it a rhythmic element too. And uh, what he's doing in the song with the, the, the scratching is you hear like a, a, a kick and a snare, and it creates a beat. That the two different tones. So this is the mixmaster mic here. Yeah. So the um, cutting is is um, is scratching as well. So when they like cut faster, cut faster, he's like uh, doing the scratching and all that. All right. So there you go. That's three MCs and one DJ from the Beastie Boys. All right. Um, now I want to move on to uh, samplers and talk about another musical instrument. So um, three things I want to talk about here. No, no. I skipped ahead of myself. Um, let, okay. Let me back up. Uh, first, I wanted to talk about the DJ and the MCs and the breakbeat. And so we got that covered. Then I wanted to talk about drum machines. We'll get to samplers as well. So we'll talk about drum machines and uh, and then samplers. And I'm going to play you some, uh, some songs that uh, use these as well. So um, first off, the drum machine. You got to talk about the 808 is the first important um, drum machine uh, that we really need to, uh, to to talk about here. And uh, the 808 is the first drum machine to really get a lot of use. Um, uh, and we're going to hear the, um, the a, a song where it gets used um, uh, here in just a, a few minutes. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's kind of like, it, it's again kind of like the big bang of drum machines. Now, there were drum machines before the 808 and it wasn't the only one that existed for sure. But, um, but, but the 808 was um, a, a new innovation because it had a, a sequencer on it. So, Imagine an electric device that looks kind of like a um, a little bit like a keyboard, kind of like a, a, a mixer, if you can imagine that in your head. And um, it has pre-programmed uh, um, drum sounds in it, um, a kick and snare. And uh, the 808 has a very distinct um, uh, kick drum that's very prominent in hip-hop. And uh, the sequencer, how it works is when you hit play, it, it kind of like cycles through um, 16 beats. And you could like, that has 16 numbers on it. And so you can press 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, all the way to 16. And it'll play whatever number number you tell it to play a kick drum on it'll play a kick drum on that beat and whichever number you tell it to play a snare drum it'll play a snare drum on that beat and so you can come up with your own programs of songs and this was hugely hugely innovative at the time and um, the sounds were not it didn't sound like like real drums it sounded like electronic drums and at the time the engineers who were designing these things we're really trying hard to make the um, the drum sound uh, like real life so that people in recording studios could use them. And early on, the recording studios didn't really like them because they didn't sound like a real drum kit. Uh, but what happened in the world of hip-hop was the world of limitations allowed them to <clears throat> um, take on these instruments and, t- and turn them into something 
that was useful to them. So um, the 808 was not a success early on as far as you know selling to recording studios. So a lot of these um, uh, people who bought them and whatnot, they um, uh, took them to thrift stores. They sold them, and so the the original you know run of the 808s um, didn't really get adopted by people. But then they ended up in, in cheaper prices in thrift stores, and then people who were were um, in the in the world of hip hop and rap started to uh, purchase these because they're just way more affordable and whatnot, and uh, they're able to to use them and tweak them and uh, and come up with really interesting sounds and beats and all that kind of stuff. Around the same time, uh, Roger Lynn developed the Lynn drum, and uh, the Lynn drum um, uh, recorded actual drums, samples of drums. So he had a guy hit a snare drum, and he recorded that, and then he had a guy um, play a kick drum, recorded that, you know, the whole thing. And then... He had a similar sequencer kind of a kind of a situation where you could you could program the Lindrum, and but it had more usable um, uh, sounds as far as like they sounded more like real instruments and whatnot. But again, um, didn't really in the early days take off in recording studios because it, it, it felt a little robotic. It didn't feel like it had a swing like a normal drummer. You know, it has a human. There's little elements that you're not playing perfect all the time. Um, these electronic drums were just like bing, bing, bing on the grid. And uh, it was like it was playing to a metronome uh, kind of a thing. So it was perfect. But to, to some early re- recording studio guys, especially in the rock world, they were like, eh, it sounds too perfect. Like, it doesn't it doesn't sound real to me, you know. And so, um, uh, people in the uh, in, in in the hip hop world, and then eventually the pop and dance and R and B world started to adopt the Lindrum, and it became the sound of the 1980s. So, so, so many songs uh, from the world of rock, like Phil Collins uh, used it, um, and uh, and and in the pop world, Madonna and Prince, and and everyone started using the Lindrum because um, you could kind of get a cool sound with it that sounded very stylistic, but then you could also mix real drums with it and, and, and it would create like a, <clears throat> an interesting, um, uh, sort of sound to it. So those two things, the 808 and the Lindrum really super important to the world of, um, uh, of hip hop. And, uh, I'm going to play you first a song called, uh, planet rock by Africa Bambata. And this song, uh, the, it, it embodies the sound of the 808. Okay. So I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about, um, but listen to this, the, the, the kick drum and the snare drum, uh, in, uh, in planet rock. And you'll hear what I'm talking about as far as like, you know, the sound of it goes. So there's a couple other sounds happening there, but that boom, 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 that that sound, that 808 kick drum, is just classic. That is the sound of uh, of that particular um, uh, drum machine, and um, it's it, it's the thing that became so distinctive uh, with the whole thing. So that's Planet Rock by Africa Bambata, and then I also wanted to play you uh, a sample from a Lind drum uh, that might be familiar to you. And uh, Prince was famously a huge fan of the Lind drum and um, put it on all kinds of recordings of him. Uh, that, that he used on, on uh, Purple Rain and, and, and other things as well. And so um, it has a very distinct sound too, but he, he, he would tweak it in his own way. And so, yeah, this is um, uh, When Doves Cry by Prince. And, uh, and listen to the drums on this one. You can hear what I'm talking about. There's a little intro, and then it comes in with the drums.
All right, so you can hear what I'm talking about there. That that sound of the that drum machine is um, that's the sound. And so when you go play, like if you put headphones on and you're playing a Lindrum, it's gonna basically exactly sounds just like that like that's what it is and there's all kinds of modern um, uh, things you can do on the computer on laptops with uh, different plugins uh, that that replicate the 808 the 909 the lindrum all the all the popular um, drum machines of the day so there you go that is when doves cry by prince and the revolution all right Let's move on to samplers, the last instrument I wanted to talk about tonight, um, today. So um, samplers, the main idea of a sampler is uh, taking a tiny sample, a tiny snippet, um, a, a sound from a record, um, from usually vinyl, and, and move that into the digital world on a machine, and then you can manipulate that sound. You can take the, a, a sample of a kick drum or a snare or a musical phrase and record it into um, the first one that we're going to talk about. The, the MPC 60, and then there's all these different um, uh, variations on it. But you would um, import it into that, and then once you once you cut it up and you take the sample of a song, you can find just the kick drum that you want to use, and you can edit that down to just the kick drum, and then you can assign that to a series of 16 pads. So it's a 4x4 four four grid, and they're these um, uh, little pl- pads that you touch, and uh, so you could edit every, you could do everything on this machine, the MPC, and uh, you would you'd have a, a, a turntable, you, you'd have like an old jazz record or some, you know, some old like Motown or something, and you'd import some sounds into the MPC. Slice it up, cut it up, and then assign the different sounds to the different um, pads on the sampler. And then you could become a composer of sounds from all these different records. It's really fascinating. It's a really fascinating uh, type of technology. And um, uh, Paul's Boutique by... um, by the Beastie Boys, um, uh, kind of took um, uh, sampling to the next level for its, its time. Um, if you're familiar with the song "Shake Your Rump" uh, by the Beastie Boys, um, that's a it's a good example of of bringing in all kinds of different uh, sounds and whatnot. And uh, the fascinating thing to me is that the guy who made the Lindrum is also the guy who invented the MPC. And neither one of these devices got used the way he thought people would use it. Like he was just developing interesting musical technology that he thought sounded cool. But then he also was like, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do with it. And and the whole world of hip hop being so inextricably tied to the Lindrum and the NPC um, to him is fascinating because he's like, I'm not actually really that big of a, a fan of this <clears throat> like pre-programmed, um, very on the grid um, style of music. But, you know, uh, people you know thought it was, it was cool and just did what they were going to do. Um, there's a whole history to to the um, uh, to, to, to sampling in music. Um, uh, if you go back to the '60s, the Beatles um, were one of the first big bands to start experimenting with loops in the studio, and uh, they're really known for um, being very experimental. Not the only band by any means to experiment with this stuff, um, but one of the the um, <clears throat> most popular bands where people were. Um, large amounts of people were buying the records and then and then hearing those samples um, used on those things and whatnot. Um, and then you know as you um, uh, go forward, um, the uh, especially when, once the MPC comes along, and that's going to be like in the um, uh, late '80s, early '90s when people start using that, um, it, it really changes the landscape of um, uh, of music. We're going to listen to a, um, a musician. Um, who, who has passed away um, uh, a, a while ago, but um, he's just an incredible, uh, incredible musician and uh, one of the guys who really took the MPC to the next level. His name is Jay Dilla. Um, Questlove is a huge fan about uh, of Jay Dilla, and uh, so I, I like. Um, I've read a, a book by Questlove and listened to his podcast quite a bit, and he's always talking about this guy. And uh, Dilla makes really, really cool, cool records, and. Uh, 
died pretty young. It's it's uh, kind of a tragedy that he he uh, uh, passed away so uh, at such a young age because he had so much to uh, to keep giving the world. But we listened to a song called. Uh, working on it and uh, this is off an album called donuts it's kind of the quintessential jay dilla um, album and uh, what i want you to listen to are is all of the different sounds that are that you can recognize um there's gonna be a bunch of stuff here that you don't recognize or maybe you will i, I didn't recognize a lot of it i recognize the beastie boys on here uh, but there's a bunch of other stuff but i'll explain a little bit more detail um after we listen to it but yeah this is um jay dilla and uh, the song is called working on it So everything you're hearing here was sampled from different records, and I'm going to tell you the artists that um, that he used on uh, on this particular song. Um, the group, there's all these are groups and, and artists that maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't. Ten CC, Raymond Scott, Malcolm McLaren, Sweet Charles, uh, Shirelle, Mantronics, Joeski Love, Beastie Boys, Skrills, and Raz Cass. Um, I only know one of those groups, <laughs> to be honest with you, and uh, I think it's pretty interesting. But um, the, everything you're hearing, the the beat, the, the kick drum, the snare drum, the different all these weird like noises and, and, and phrases of things and whatnot, those are all sampled from different um, records. There's eight different songs that he used to sample to make this particular song. And so it's a composition. It's a, it, it's a, it's a, you know, it's like a... Um, I don't know what, uh, how to explain it. Then it's like this weird, you know, sort of a like composition, and it's all done on this this machine that you know is maybe like twelve inches by twelve inches, and it's not very huge, uh, but you can do so much with it. And uh, so this first one, the MPC sixty, and then the next one I think was the MPC three thousand, uh, just changed the landscape. And so many of so much of nineties hip hop was based on uh, a sample. So you're talking like. Pete Brock, you're talking Wu-Tang Clan, you're talking Beastie Boys, you're talking Dilla, you're talking all these different um, uh, groups that start to incorporate the sampler into their sound, and uh, I'm going to pull this one back here. Um, so that was uh, just a huge, huge influence on the development of hip-hop. So all of that to say that I think we should respect hip-hop as folk music, that it was innovative musicians who were taking uh, instruments, and they had limitations, but they were they were doing what they could with it. And they come up with a new style that eventually, um, you know, in the in, in the 2000s, starts to become the most popular style of music in the world. And I think that's just like a beautiful story, you know, of just humans making music and doing fun, cool stuff with it. And uh, whether you're not a you're a, a fan of hip hop, I hope you can um, you know, appreciate uh, what was going on with all this stuff. And so that's why I think we should consider hip hop folk music. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Just a quick reminder to follow me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Like and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to this. Leave a rating and tell a friend. Also, big thanks to Charlie Marks for providing the music for the show. Until next time, everybody. Have a good one.